Welcome to the 280th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with New York Times bestselling author, Susan Wiggs. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Susan Wiggs, author of the brand new novel, The Lost and Found Bookshop. Susan's novels have appeared in the number one spot on the New York Times bestseller list and have captured readers' hearts around the globe with translations into more than 20 languages and 30 countries. Her, pre- her previous novels have included The Apple Orchard, The Oysterville Sewing Circle, Return to Willow Lake, and many others. Susan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to come and talk about books and writing all the time. <laughs> Great. Well, if, if someone listening hasn't heard about your new novel, The Lost and Found Bookshop, how would you describe it? This one is a book that occupied my entire life for a year. It is a very personal novel. Um, the main character, Natalie, she's purposely built a life of emotional and financial security. She wanted to protect herself from the way that she was raised in what she viewed as a very unstable childhood, living in a garret apartment above a rickety old bookshop in old San Francisco. And so she's always been on a quest for stability. And pretty much on page one, her world gets turned upside down by this very overwhelming tragedy and situation. And she finds herself taking over the bookstore that she never expected to have. In addition to being the caregiver for her elderly and much beloved, but very needy grandfather at the same time. So she has a triple whammy. It's one of those stories that illustrates that things don't happen to us one at a time. (laughs) We don't get to get through one crisis and move on to the next. Sometimes, um, you know, there's an entire storm of things. So it's the unraveling of a life and the remaking of a life. And it's a very tender novel Whereas my previous novel, The Oysterville Sewing Circle, was was rather angry. It involved uh, domestic abuse and workplace abuse and things like that. This one is much more intimate and, uh, and, and quite personal to me as well. I'm the caregiver for my elderly mom, who's 89. So, yeah, there's my long-winded answer. Um, <laughs> I'm so excited for it to come out because... The feed, but one of the things my publisher did for this book is they produced an early copy edition and sent it to many, many independent booksellers all around the country for feedback. And I'm so excited because based on the feedback that came back, it hits the right notes for people who love books and love bookstores. They love book groups. And so I'm really excited to get this into the hands of readers. And so do you remember the original idea that led you to write The Lost and Found Bookshop? Yes, and it has nothing to do with anything I just told you. (laughs) I was reading, like all writers, I'm just endlessly curious about minutia that most people would overlook. And I happen to be reading something in um, either National Geographic or Smithsonian Magazine about the Spanish-American War, which very few of us know much about, myself included. And I read a little bit that said that um, some of the the soldiers 
in that war were deployed from San Francisco to the Philippines, which was a Spanish possession in 1899. And so before they were deployed, they were, they were stationed in San Francisco. And when they had to leave something of value behind, they didn't necessarily have a home or anybody to leave it with or a bank deposit box or anything. And so they would sometimes hide things in the walls of their favorite saloons. And I was very intrigued by that idea. I'm thinking if I'm going away and I don't know when I'll be back or if I'll ever be back, but I have something I want to leave behind or something of value, I kind of, um, I, I started riffing on that idea and I came up with this whole incredibly dramatic but totally unworkable historical novel. <laughs> <laughs> but then I sort of, I know, it was sort of like going down a rabbit hole. One thing led to another and I thought, okay, well, what would the building be? It would be a building in old San Francisco, but it would have to be a building that survived the 1906 earthquake and fire. And I learned that about 25% of the buildings did survive. And so then I invented my own build. So it actually started with the building. And then I thought, would the occupants be what would be in there and so then we fast forward and this is all revealed you know through this the contemporary modern day story but we fast forward and we and this is our bookshop now with my very reluctant bookseller living in the garret up above and the walls are crumbling because the building is so old and she starts finding these artifacts and it kind of her journey through her emotional journey is kind of reflected by the things that she finds and what she does with them and the way that she restores them. So I'm curious, does the idea process that you just described, is that kind of similar um, for each novel or is it, is it unique to each <laughs> novel that you write? Well, don't we wish, uh, <laughs> I wish that I had the same process every time. I, and, and, you know, one thing that I should tell the, the writers who are listening to this is if you think like I do, that every other writer except you has all the answers and they have the perfect method, probably you're wrong. <laughs> I'm always <laughs> convinced that every other writer has a better a better way of getting there than I do. And I'm endlessly curious. I want to know where their ideas come from and how they develop them and, and what their workspace is and what their working day is like. And yet I never, um, I never hear the same answer from the same author. And I would love to be like, I do have one writer friend who says she lays on the floor and she plays country Western songs, like sad breakup <laughs> songs. And comes up with book after book after book. And it's the same method every time. And I'm just fascinated by that. I It would it would cut out a lot of wasted time for me if, <laughs> if I knew where the next thing was coming from. But after 50-some books which I, that I've written, I usually have to trust that it will come. But it might come out of nowhere when I'm waiting for a train or, you know, sitting on my patio or pruning my garden or something. Or listening to country music. Yeah. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I did say uh, some songs have inspired. I'm, I'm trying. Oh yeah. One book was inspired by a song. I remember it. The book was called just breathe. It was a big reader favorite and a, a bestseller. And it was um, inspired by the song breathe 2am by Anna Nalik. Mm -hmm. I'm familiar she, with it. 
Yeah, it was a huge hit a few years ago. Yeah, it was. It was. It's it's on my kind of major playlist on Spotify. But um, so I'm yeah, curious. Was- I mean, obviously the pandemic has changed. Uh, at least for me, I'm a huge bookstore person, and that's yeah. one of the things I'm really looking forward to getting back into a bookstore. I'm curious. Yeah. So let's just answer this question pre-pandemic. What role do bookstores and bookshops play in your own life? They were, I was like you, I, my bookstore was more than just a retailer that you pop into. It was a place where I would go to connect with people who love books, who want to share. I love walking into a bookstore and somebody like practically hits me over the head with a book. Oh my God, you got to read this. And so things like that just inspire me. And so I I love bookstores for that reason. Library um, is just this welcome mat that's been a part of my life. You know, it belongs to my earliest memories. So they're really huge for me. And I don't think I've ever met a writer who dismissed how important bookstores are. And I always give my main character a job that I would love to have, which is why they're they're painters and photographers and world travelers. And, um, you know, they have this kind of glorious lifestyle. And I always did want to be a bookseller, but I knew that I wasn't cut out for it because I'm simply just not that organized. And you do need a pretty keen sense, uh, you know, business sense in order to do that. And so this is uh, the Lost and Found Bookshop is my fantasy bookstore. And I did um, um, connect with real working booksellers as I was researching this book and they're going to laugh when they see it because I'd talked to them for three hours just to get like one little nugget of information from them. And of course had to oversimplify certain things because the minutia is not interesting to read about. But um, I hope that I, based on the feedback from the early bookseller readers of the book, I think um, I, I hope that we, that I was able to, um, make that come alive for readers in a, in a really dramatic way. Great. And what, what are your earliest memories of reading and books? I, I can tell you the very first book that I, that I um, remember being read to me was um, it was called the watchbirds. And it was by the guy who wrote um, Ferdinand the bull. And I can't remember the guy. Oh, Quentin something not quentin tarantino (laughs) that'd be a little bit different (laughs) yeah no we we, uh my dad would read that to us and we would laugh and howl. there were three of us all you know stair-step kids i was in the middle and i remember i was probably three years old and then by the age of four i was an early reader and i read a book called the carrot seed by ruth kraus and it's still in print, I'm sure. It's, you know, 60-whatever years old by now. And I remember being so proud that I could read that book. I wanted to show everybody this book that I could read. So I have that. And then, the, and I remember the very first book that I bought with my own money was called Yertle the Turtle by Dr. Seuss. And I didn't even know that it was subversive literature when I was reading it. But um, apparently it is. <laughs> So I'm, I'm curious, what was the path of? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I was going to say I had one of libraries that sort of in your neck of the woods. It was in upstate New York, and it was one of those um, kind of neo-gothic, big blocky granite libraries with the pillars and the marble stairs and the big atrium inside. And I was 
almost afraid of the um, of the bathroom. It was so scary. I just remember that that bit and being so proud to have my library card. And oh gosh, it was such a home away from home for me. That's great. So I'm curious, what was the path to publication for you to writing and publishing your first novel? Had you always well, wanted to yeah, be a writer? Always. I always from before I could even read or write, I would I would scribble on paper and tell my mother, now write this down. I would say, now write this down. And she would do it. And, I, and she actually saved some samples uh, from when I was, you know, three and four and five years old of books that I self-published. So it, it never, it, it was always something that I was drawn to and called to do. And I went through college and graduate school knowing I wanted to be a writer, but knowing that nobody, nobody pays you to aspire to write. <laughs> so I knew that I needed a job. I thought teaching would suit me. I loved it. I was good at it. I got a master's in it. And I thought that I would write in the evenings and the school holidays. And so it seemed like that would, that would suit my lifestyle. My, you know, that would support my writing and indeed, that's what I did. My, um, you know, I, I wrote my first book on a typewriter. Well, I write everything in longhand first, and then I type it up. And that didn't sell. And I wrote my second book on a typewriter. It all, You know, by the third book, I kind of got the hang of it. And it was in the 80s. There was no internet. There was no, you know, the, the resources for writers were so different before the internet. It was Writer's Digest. And there was a... Um, there was some annual journal that um, you could only get from the library. I think it was called the literary. Now I can't even remember the name of it, but it was literary a, marketplace. I think. Yeah, that was it. LMP. Oh, good memory. Yeah. There, there was that. And, but I still didn't really get what the process was like. I kind of pictured, and this is a true story. I pictured the um, publisher as being wherever the P.O. box was in the back of the book. You know, you'd read a paperback book and it would say, did you like this book? Would you like more? You know, um, send a coupon to Avon Books. And it was at a P.O. box in Ohio or something. And I thought, well, that's where I should send my manuscript. And so I, I, did, I, I sent my manuscript to this P.O. box in Ohio and um, most of them disappeared. But one time it came back in those big pouch envelopes. And with a scribbled note that said, this is the fulfillment warehouse. You want editorial in New York. And they gave me an address. And so, you know, being the genius that I was, I addressed my next manuscript to my next mailing to editorial, New York, New York. <laughs> <laughs> and I collected a number of rejects that way. However, eventually I believe there was a, a piece in Writer's Digest that I noticed that mentioned um, genre editors because an editor works usually with one type of book or, you know, with discrete types, cookbooks, nonfiction, commercial fiction, mystery, that sort of thing. And so I was writing historical romances at the time, and I found an editor whose name was associated with, with historical romance. And so I sent it directly to her. And she got back to me within, oh gosh, days and uh, made me an offer on that book. And it, I remember it was the end of August and she said, but we need to get it into production um, the day after Labor Day. So can you revise it? 
<laughs> and so I, I revised a typewritten 600 page book in a long weekend. I was wow. very motivated. Wow. And I was also like 26 years old, so that yeah. helped. <laughs> it helped me young and and <laughs> and hungry and motivated. So yeah, that was my first sale. So, and I, I should say for your listeners, I don't recommend um, selling directly to a publisher without a literary agent. The reason I did that is there's a bit of a catch twenty two because agents aren't really interested in working with writers who are unproven in with zero track record and I had zero track record. So the agents didn't want to talk to me and the publishers didn't want any submissions that were unagented. And so it's a bit of a catch 22, but you can sometimes through a query letter or a personal connection or something like that, get an editor to look at it. And I did, I I made myself a really, really poor deal on that very first book Um, I just didn't know my way around publishing contracts. I did join the Authors Guild, which I recommend everybody to do the minute they're a published author because that's our advocacy group. So they helped me with that contract. But even they said, look, you really want a literary agent. So after I had a publisher ready, you know, to publish my book, then it was not a problem to interview agents and find someone to represent me. So I, I sort of did it backwards. I got the first sale under my belt and then hired a literary agent. And after that, only ever worked with an agent, um, a, an agent who would never, ever charge any sort of fee. I do know that there are some kind of predatory agencies that that like to um, charge writers for processing fees or reading fees or submission fees or something like that. Um, definitely not a fan of that. An agent makes their money off of a commission off of your selling your book, ten to fifteen percent, depending on your deal with the agent. So I'm curious if if you can remember. Um, in you mentioned that it was like your third novel that you that you finally got published. The third novel that you had written. Uh, um, do you remember were there specific writing challenges in those first manuscripts that you had to either overcome or figure out whether it's characterization, plotting, dialogue? Yes. I I kind of hit um, pay dirt with a book that is a bit hard to find, but it's a, it's a really amazing, helpful book called um, Techniques of the Selling Writer by Dwight Swain. And it's a small press. It might be like University of Oklahoma or something like that. And it's just a really clear roadmap on how to put together a work of commercial fiction. So that was my roadmap. And also simply the act of sitting down and writing a book from start to finish, there is no better training program than that to really put something together. It's like building a house from the ground up. And so um, after doing that for two complete books, neither of which sold because they also lacked something that I was very unaware of, which is commercial elements. You know, they need a, a really appealing setting and um, a storyline that readers can instantly um, relate to. And those first books, they were very political. They were set in obscure historical um, cities around obscure historical events that interested me, you know, like the Spanish American war, but would not really hook a reader because the relatability wasn't there. 
And what I did, I found myself reading this sexy Western historical romance and just really getting into it. And I thought, well, people like Texas, they like cowboys. And so my third book, I thought I can write a story with these elements. And so it was a combination of my writing skills improving and me being more aware of what flies with readers. So given your success and, and hitting the New York Times, the number one New York Times list, uh, what writing advice would you offer for listeners who are writing their own stories and novels and would like to get them published? I think that, first of all, you have to have this fire in the belly because I, I've done a lot of teaching of writing. I've done workshops and retreats and things like that, and I've worked with literally hundreds of writers over the 30 years that I've been a published author. And in those 30 years, I think there are four people that I worked with who actually became published authors in their own right. And um, so it's, and, and the reason isn't that they weren't talented. It isn't that they didn't have good ideas because they did. They had talent, they had good ideas, but what they didn't have was this, um, stick to itiveness, this, you know, raw determination. I'm going to get my story done and I'm going to send it out and find the right publisher for this book. And that sounds really simple as we talk about it, but, and I'm oversimplifying as I'm telling my story, but it takes a great deal of good. Nobody's encouraging you. Nobody's funding you. The, you know, the mountain is out. You want to go paddle boarding. You want to play with your kid. You want to take your dog for a walk. Your mother needs something. You know, there's a million reasons to not write. And you have to have that fire in the belly that, nope, I'm going to sit here and get this story out because it is burning a hole in me. And I feel that way about every book I write, even the difficult parts, because it would be nice if I would sit down and just, you know, kind of take dictation from God and get my novel flowing. But, you know, some days, some days it's like passing a kidney stone. It's just painful and it won't come. And so, uh, you know, there are good days and bad, but uh, even a bad day of writing, I'm still doing what I want and what I've always dreamed of doing. And so for emerging writers, Make it important to your, to you, to your family, make it a priority. If it's a priority, you'll do it. You know, you'll, you'll say, no, thanks. I can't go golfing today. I'm going to write. No, thanks. I can't watch this movie. I can't binge this series. And sometimes the choices aren't a lot of fun, but, and I, and I acknowledge that I've gotten lazier as I've gone along, but I've earned, I think I've earned my laziness. You know, there was a time when I was writing two books a year, two long books a year. And I was just, you know, filled with the energy to write. And now um, one of the bonuses of, of being long published and having successful publications is that I get to slow myself down a little bit. So as you mentioned, you've been writing, for 30 years, what keeps you excited now and going back to the novels and going back to the writing each day? I guess it's because every book and every idea feels fresh to me 
in terms of the people that I'm going to populate the book with, the setting of the book, the drama of the book, I, I never tire of that. It's sort of like going to, well, if you're social and you're not an introvert, going to a new party every, you know, every few days and meeting a whole new cast <laughs> of characters. And so it ne- I never tire of that process. And people ask me, they say, well, you know, what are your retirement plans? You know, like my financial planner, what are your retirement plans? And I think, well, I don't think, I, I can't see myself ever retiring from writing. I could maybe see myself trying something way out of my writing box. My writing box is commercial fiction and maybe I would try something like a screenplay or a murder mystery or, you know, something that, that I'm not known for, but I've always, you know, admired and wanted to try my hand at, but that's down the road because right now, one of the, one of the great, great bonuses of having a really good publisher behind your book is that they bring new readers to you. Every single book you think, Oh my gosh, that book sold really well. I've got all the readers I need. No, I'm greedy for more. And so I get my energy from getting the story to the reader. Like the the day that this book will be published is such a, such a cool day because it's not my book anymore. I, I wrote it, but then it goes out in the world. It's sort of like sending your kid off to kindergarten or something. It's not <laughs> yours anymore. It's got a life of its own in the hands of a reader. Cause I've always believed that, Everybody reads a different book. We can all read the same book, but we all bring our own creative experiences to it. And so everybody reads a different book. And I'm hopeful that the Lost and Found Bookshop will have enough stories in it and enough different tropes that people will relate to it on a number of levels. Great. Well, what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Um, I'm in the middle of reading a really, really hard to read, but incredibly well-written literary novel um, called Homegoing by, I hope I'm going to say her name right, Yagiasi, because one of the other things that's been happening in the in our world here, is, besides the pandemic, is that we're having uh, racial protests and um, justifiable anger with, um, you know, police brutality. And so I made a commitment that I would shop at um, um, bookshops owned by people of color and take their recommendations. And this was recommended by a black owned bookshop. I got it online, you know, I talked to them online. And um, so I I kind of have a stack of reading outside my culture. And so that's going to be probably most of my summer reading. So that one. And for nonfiction, um, my very good friend, a guy that I just admire so much, Eric Larson wrote The Splendid and the Vile. And it's a story of Churchill and World War II. And so that one is, it's on my nightstand, but it's going to have to um, make a Father's Day gift for my husband. He's not my father, but <laughs> you know, he needs something on Father's Day because he is a dad. So sure. um, I'll, I'll probably have to hand it over to him. And then the other one that I'm reading because I'm the caregiver for my mom, who's 89, is it's called um, Advice to Future Corpses and Those Who Love Them, <laughs> which is a kind of crazy title. Yeah, Advice to Future Corpses. Uh, by Sally Tisdale, I believe. And 
it's um it's very loving and practical and philosophical thoughts about the elderly and what their needs are and what the needs of the people caring for them are and and I've really benefited from that so I'm all over the map with my reading so where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your novels? Oh, thank you for asking. I always forget to to promote my website, susanwigs.com, wigs with two Gs. And that is the central, you know, direct uh, direction to go because all of my events this summer are going to be virtual events, which is kind of a blessing and a curse. The blessing is that anybody from anywhere in the world literally can log on and um, and participate in an event, a bookstore event. And most of them seem to be on a platform where the author is chatting remotely with the bookseller and we have like a book chat and Q&A with readers and that sort of thing. And then, and then they can order a, a autographed book. So I've got several of those lined up. And starting or sorry, July 7th, um, it will be available everywhere, including the mass market. I don't want to I, I don't want to steer people away from Target and Walmart and Costco and Sam's and all the book outlets that they frequent because those are booksellers, too. And they did stay open during the pandemic. So I can't dismiss that. But one of the things that happened was indie bookstores really organized themselves to try to stay, you know, try to stay afloat during all the shutdowns. So they, I think they were pretty successful. I hope so. I hope they stay open. And so I'm encouraging readers of the Lost and Found Bookshop to please, please, if they have an independent bookshop in their town or one that they know of, order online, order um, a curbside delivery somehow managed to patronize these mom and pop community centers. Cause I, I just think that they're so valuable. That's, that's a great message. And I completely agree. Yes. Um, and I agree well, with your website has a link to, is it Libro FM? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That one um, you can even, I, I believe you can designate the bookshop that you want to benefit with your purchase of an audiobook from Lib- Libro FM, which I love. You can. So great. Well, again, we've been speaking with New York Times bestselling writer Susan Wiggs. Her new novel, The Lost and Found Bookshop, is in bookstores now. So go buy a copy. And Susan, thanks for doing this interview. Jeff, thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. What a great way to start my day. Great. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. Listen to audiobooks during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Reading and writing podcast special offer, get two audiobooks for the price of one with your first month of membership with code RWPODCAST. That's code RWPODCAST for two audiobooks for the price of one for your first month of membership at Libro.fm. You know how to book flights and hotels. 
All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.